The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. I'm not sure that at this point, with the way society is, society is basically over with this pandemic. They're done, even though the pandemic's not done with us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're paying the high price we are in the United States right now. We see such major increases in numbers of cases is because people have just gone back to living a life that they had long before COVID showed up. So we have a real concern. That's Michael Osterholm, one of the world's foremost epidemiologists and a member of President-elect Joe Biden's Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board. And with the arrival of the Omicron variant, he has some sobering news for anyone who thinks the pandemic is behind us. Here's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which he not only details the most pressing infectious disease threats of our day, but lays out a nine-point strategy on how to address them. Welcome to Magellan In The Know. In this episode, Dr. Osterholm talks with Magellan's chairman and chief investment officer, Hamish Douglas, about what he calls a coming COVID viral blizzard. He says governments around the world will need to either drastically change their public health policies to deal with what will be an overwhelming situation for hospitals or consider fresh lockdowns. But it will be difficult because of public pushback and so many around the world having moved on from the pandemic and trying to live life as it was before. Here's Hamish to introduce this world-renowned epidemiologist. Welcome back to Magellan in the Know. My name is Hamish Douglas. I'm the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Asset Management. Today we have a very, very timely episode of Magellan in the Know, and I'm sure people are quite anxious at the moment and really wanting to hear what's going on. Today we have a guest who we speak to and is one of the world's foremost experts in disease control and immunology around the world. We have Dr. Michael Osterholm, who is a Regents Professor and the Director of the Centre for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He also holds many other distinguished roles. In November 2020, Michael was appointed to President-elect Joe Biden's Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board and has been a continual source of fact-based information and analysis throughout this pandemic, including his weekly Osterholm Update COVID-19 podcast released by the University of Minnesota. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book released in 2017, titled Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which he not only details the most pressing infectious disease threats of our day, but lays out a nine-point strategy of how to address them with preventing a global flu pandemic at the top of the list. Michael, it's great to speak to you again and welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. In the past few weeks, we've learned about a new strain of the virus that we've all come to know as Omicron, which emerged, we believe, out of South Africa. Whilst we appreciate it's still early days in understanding this strain, there's been a lot of confusing public messaging 
from complete alarm to you've got nothing to worry about if you're vaccinated to this is no more than a sort of common cold. And finally, some people are saying this variant is actually great news because it's going to spread immunity to the world. You know, as a scientist and from what you currently know, and I know it's a bit caveated from what we know at the moment, how concerned are you about this particular strain we're seeing? Well, let me just sum it up by saying I'm very concerned. And uh, while many of the uh, points that you just mentioned are really major issues, I think the data are clearly emerging that while this may not have exactly the same punch to it that Delta does, the overall numbers of cases combined with the punch it does have could surely equal that of Delta and not more. And the, the, I think the other challenge is, is that the transmission of this virus is so dynamic, many of these cases are going to occur all at once. So, you know, it's one thing to have a thousand cases over a thousand days. It's another thing to have a thousand cases over an hour. And I think that this is what we're really concerned about is that we're going to see over the next three to seven weeks around the world a global blizzard with Omicron that is going to be a very challenging situation for us. And Michael, when you say global blizzard, you're really saying, I may have been thinking in the next eight weeks this could explode, but you think it could even be faster than that. The data you're seeing out of Denmark and the UK and South Africa, is that worrying you of how many people, some of these countries are quite highly vaccinated, is it worrying you just the speed of the spread here? Well, first of all, I assume at this point that this virus is in every country right now. If it isn't been documented, it's just because they haven't found it yet. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I think that this is such a highly transmissible virus that's moved around the world. Where it has been found, it also has become increasingly associated with rapid growth. It doesn't matter which continent you're on, and it doesn't matter what event, meaning that we see college campuses, we see parties, we see all kinds of different locations where we're seeing very rapid transmission. In our surveys that we're doing right now in the United States, much is being done in Europe, where we're looking for the virus in terms of the genetic sequence so we can look and see which variant it is, it is doubling about every one and a half to two and a half days, which is a remarkable number. That's not much when you're doubling 8 to 16 to 32, but when you start doubling 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000, those are real numbers. And so that's where we're at right now, and I think it's just a matter of time if you're going to see that around the world. Yeah, that's a frightening exponential growth. At the beginning, it seems very small, but you're right, it quickly becomes extraordinary numbers if it doubles every few days. And some people take a lot of comfort that the Delta strain, the vaccines held, and therefore some people are saying, is this is the same movie? We've seen this before, and therefore we've got nothing really to worry about. Delta wasn't that big a issue. Is this a different movie? This is a different movie, and actually I might even argue it's a different type of venue, Uh, meaning that uh, it's different than watching it on your home screen versus a big screen in some public location. When you look at the mechanisms by which we are concerned about for variants and what they do, there really are three buckets of activity that are important to us. One, is it more transmissible? Two, does it cause more severe illness? And three, can it evade immune protection and defense? And what we're seeing right now is that, first of all, this is highly transmissible, much more so than Delta. And Delta was the king of the virus hill. We don't have evidence that it's causing more serious illness. It's causing serious illness, but not necessarily in a higher proportion. But what we are seeing is that third bucket, the immune evasion, 
meaning that the protection from vaccines or previous infection are not holding up against it. Now, there still is a real benefit to being vaccinated, and I don't want anyone to walk away thinking, oh, we don't need to vaccinate anymore, because we have evidence that there's less severe illness, less hospitalizations, less death among those who are fully vaccinated, and particularly those who have the booster for the mRNA vaccines. So at this point, that's the challenge we have, is that being fully vaccinated, even with a booster, doesn't mean you're not going to get infected. Many of the outbreaks we've had, the large proportion of people who were in the outbreaks were vaccinated people who still got sick. And Michael, just expanding, just to be clear on this, would you agree that the lab data we've seen so far would almost confirm that this Omicron variant has escaped the antibody resistance from the two-dose regime of the mRNA and the one-dose from the J&J regime in preventing symptomatic infections. We don't know whether they're still going to hold up against severe disease, but but for symptomatic infections, you're not protected. So should people be taking some care here even after their two-dose regime here? Right. I think it's really important that we come to some understanding that all along, these probably should have been three and two dose vaccines, respectively. The mRNA vaccines with three doses, the adenovirus platform vaccines should have been at least two doses. And what happened is early on in the pandemic, we needed vaccines as quickly as we could. And we had, again, two areas that we clearly had to obtain information. One was safety, which we've done, We have a good handle on safety, but we really have never figured out exactly how best to use these vaccines. How many doses? How should they be spaced out? How much antigen should be in each dose? And what we did is we really planned the early studies to get information as quickly as possible so that we could get them approved and get them out, which means it saved millions of lives. But, you know, the idea that, for example, with the mRNA vaccines where you get vaccinated on day one, you get dose two and the third week or dose two and the fourth week, depending on whether it's a Pfizer or Moderna, you know, that's a short period of time to re-hit your immune system. And so that we now realize that, in fact, we need to have a much more extended time period between doses and that a third dose, like so many other vaccines, is really necessary. So I've said for months and months, I don't like to call these booster doses. I call them the three prime or two prime vaccine doses. And uh, that is very important relative to what you just asked in terms of preventing severe disease. Clearly, two doses are a lot better than being unvaccinated, but you even get much more protection out of that third dose. And Michael, on this severe disease, it looks like that the antibody levels in a two-dose regime isn't going to stop you getting infected. A booster may do that, but we don't know how long the booster will last for, of how long that will be prevalent. But how much do we know about the other immune responses we're getting from uh, these vaccinations in terms of like T-cell response or something? Do we have good scientific evidence on that? Or do we have to actually wait for the physical world data as this spreads in a few weeks to actually really know about that severe and hospitalizations? Early data looks like it's milder, but do we actually know that the sort of E-cell response we're getting from vaccines that we could have confidence in before we get the real-world data? Well, first of all, let's break that apart into two separate areas. One is the actual laboratory-based data, which is all about how much neutralizing antibody and other kinds of antibodies that we develop, as well as T-cells. And we do not have at this time what we call a correlative protection. We don't know exactly what it is in the immune response 
that is most important in protecting us. We have ideas, but we don't have a place of measurement where we can say, if you have this much antibody or these kinds of immune responses, you're protected. So we go on the simple fact that the more antibody you have, the better. But I think what's really important is the actual real field data, the clinical data. You can't tell me for certain at any one antibody level is someone protected or not or what might they experience. And so what we're looking for today is in the field, who is protected and who's not. We can do actually what we call vaccine effectiveness studies, where we look at people who are vaccinated, people who are not vaccinated, we can compare and contrast them and say, well, the vaccine is preventing 75% of severe illness, or it's preventing 50% or 100%. That's what we're really up against right now. And what we're finding is that even with full vaccination, we may only be preventing 75% of the severe illness with Omicron and hopefully more protection when we actually have the booster dose. So that's what's going to be important right now is, is to get those kind of data from the field to give us a sense of just how protected we are. And then, Michael, I would say even if we get a 75%, that's an average across society. There could be segments of society where that data, like more elderly people, could look dramatically different to that average of the 75. So, so that's yeah. very important information. That's, that's not only important, but let me also say we have new data from South Africa, courtesy of the African public health officials and analyzed by Financial Times, which has done an outstanding job of reporting on this uh, pandemic. And what we can see is actually if you plot out the uh, Delta wave and the Beta wave and the original ancestral Wuhan strain wave and look at over time, how has this particular variant, Omicron, measured up against those? And what we can see is if you actually look at the case climb in terms of what proportion of all the variants were this particular variant, such as when Delta came in and took out all the other variants, Omicron is actually doing this in almost twice the speed that Delta did. Number two, if you look at hospitalizations, the climb in hospitalizations for both Beta and Delta are actually very similar to what we're seeing with Omicron right now. Number three, is the deaths are in the same absolute place. So at 15 to 30 days into Omicron, we're seeing deaths at the same level we saw Delta as it was taking over. Now, the one good piece of news today that uh, may be some harbinger of things to come is the fact that already it looks like case numbers are slowing down in South Africa, that this explosion happened over the last six weeks, and that, that we may now be seeing some remission in terms of the increase. We surely hope that's the case, but that also points out for many of us, we too could be having a six to eight week period eventually where we have this viral blizzard hit, much as South Africa has. And Michael, even if this is milder in terms of severe disease and hospitalizations, how concerned should we be in the next sort of six to eight weeks that we could just have a serious global health crisis just because yeah. of the scale and number of people. You multiply a less severe disease against a much larger number of infections. Could we have just a, becoming overwhelmed in terms of being able yeah. to cope for a short period of time? Very good point, Hamish. That's a very good point. And that is a big concern for us right now is, you know, in the United States, at least in many parts of the country right now, our healthcare systems are hanging on by a thread. We have had major challenges with Delta. And our case numbers have gone up precipitously with Delta. Now, one of the challenges we're going to have is what will happen between the Delta versus Omicron battle. Who will win? 
Will there be co-victors? Will one dominate over the other? Right now, it looks like Omicron is going to take over. And if that does, then we have a situation where at least for three to four weeks, the Delta cases are still already in the oven, you might say. They're coming from the number of people who are infected this moment to those who then eventually get sick enough to get hospitalized, who then get serious enough illness to die. And so for a period of time, Delta is going to continue to still be the driving force of severe illness. But then overlaid on that will be Omicron, which will be coming. And as you just pointed out, we could have an infection that is three times less likely to create severe disease. But if it's transmitted six times more frequently than the other Delta variant, you got yourself a net increase in the number of people presenting to hospital. The last problem we have, which hasn't really been addressed yet in any really effective means, what are we going to do if one quarter or one third or even one half of our healthcare workers all get infected and are out at the same time? Even though they're vaccinated, they still have a very high likelihood of getting infected. We're going to have to change, I think, the definition of who can work, when they can work, and how they can work if they get infected. You know, today, if a doctor, a nurse, or some other allied health professional is infected with Omicron, and we then see that they're not ill, you know, we may want them to continue to work just because of the fact that uh, we won't have anybody else caring for these patients. So, you know, I think at this point, this is going to be a huge challenge to work through both the science and the policy around what to do with this new surge that's going to hit us all. And obviously, there's a lot of COVID fatigue in society. There's a lot of pressure on politicians not to sort of overreact or do something here. How likely do you think it is if healthcare systems really become overwhelmed that politicians will be forced to try and slow this down? Or do you think it'll just be too late? Yeah. Well, if you use the US example, we're overwhelmed now in a number of locations. And we're not seeing the government step up much because of the fact there's not much they can do. The public, ironically, even though they're losing loved ones to COVID, have not wanted to see any mandates. They don't want to see us, you know, putting masks in place. They don't want that. And so governors and clearly the federal government of the United States has said, you know, no lockdowns, no restriction of movements, no mandates beyond vaccines, which have been challenged in the courts. And so I'm not sure that at this point, with the way society is, society is basically over with this pandemic. They're done, even though the pandemic's not done with us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're paying the high price we are in the United States right now. We see such major increases in numbers of cases because people have just gone back to living a life that they had long before COVID showed up. So we have a real concern. Some other countries may be able to better enforce public health restrictions that would slow down transmission. But even in Australia, you've seen the pushback that's occurred more recently with uh, any kind of suggestion of limiting activities or requiring people to do things. Well, it sounds like we're really going to give the virus its maximum environment here. It's going to have the ultimate environment. And, and in hospitals, it's just not COVID when you get overwhelmed. It's, there's a lot of other things that present in hospitals that have mortality associated with them. And if you're overwhelmed and you have a heart attack, it's not the greatest place yeah. to turn up to a hospital that has no ICU beds. Well, you know, it's it's an example in our own state of Minnesota, which has literally been in a surge since September, much like the UK has been. We didn't have this wrap it up and wrap it down in terms of number of cases. We've just stayed up. And we have many, many emergency rooms right now that are among some of the top emergency rooms in our entire state 
where you're backed up at least 80 patients and wait times to be seen in an emergency room is 12 to 14 hours. That is obviously a crisis if you're having an acute heart attack, a stroke, any number of things, you know, how do you triage in that kind of environment? Last week, we had an ice storm here in Minneapolis-St. Paul, resulting in a number of automobile accidents. And these poor patients who were injured often had to wait in waiting rooms for some time before they could be seen and cared for. That's what Omicron is doing right now. And I don't think people really still fully understand the extent to which that impact is rippling through all of healthcare. And what do you think is the best and worst case sort of scenario? Where are the bookends of what this looks like in the next few months? Well, you know, Hamish, as you may recall, as I've had discussions with you, I've been saying for almost uh, 10 months now that I thought that some of the darkest days of the pandemic were still yet ahead of us. And that was not a popular thing to be saying last April, in the United States at least, when case numbers were dropping precipitously and vaccines were flowing widely. But I saw what the variants could do. I saw Alpha emerge in November in the UK. I saw the issues with beta and gamma in South America and in South Africa where they could evade immune protection. And I thought to myself, wow, I mean, this is one big evolutionary effort by this virus. And there are so many people left in the world to get infected. There are going to be more variants and they're likely going to be more complicated. And, you know, I made the comment at one point that they're going to start throwing 210 mile an hour curveballs at us. And they have. And so I don't think the variants are done yet. I think the Omicron is the latest version of one. And this is why we really have to work hard on what we call a pan-corona vaccine, one that could basically cover any number of different eventualities that might emerge with all these mutations. So I'd love to give you a crystal ball view of what's going to happen. I think if it's Omicron only and we're done, then I'm going to say that probably in a few months, this will be infected most people around the world and we'll have a lot of protection, at least in the short term, from any serious illness and maybe in many cases even mild illness. But then over time, like influenza, it probably would come back as waning immunity would set in. I think with the vaccines, we're already seeing the problem with waning immunity. These are really, really remarkable tools, but they're not perfect. And one of the things we're realizing is they don't necessarily produce great long-term protection. Even after the third dose, which surely does boost you substantially back to those early days of those first two doses, we have evidence now that even the third dose begins to wane after three or four months. So I don't see a world ahead of us that's going to vaccinate the entire world's population every six months. So somehow we're going to have to figure out better vaccines or we're going to have to just accept the fact that we're going to see a certain proportion of our society every year being infected by COVID virus, and that some of them could be a a real challenge. And Michael, just on that question of boosters and the waning immunity from boosters, you know, they provided in much of the data sort of four weeks after the booster, which you would expect is a maximum point of protection of, of antibodies. Why didn't they give us data? Why haven't we seen data at 12 weeks and 16 weeks and 20 weeks after a booster from these lab experiments to actually give us the waning data? Or was it, was it something they, they just didn't want to release to, to people that we want people's boosters? Is it impossible to do that sort of longitudinal lab-based information? But no one's released that longitudinal information on the boosters. Is it just that the health authorities are saying, please do not put that out, or is it impossible yeah. to do? Well, first of all, 
remember we went into this with the idea that this kind of two-dose and out approach was going to work. You know, I think there were a number of us who were skeptical that that would be sufficient, that we'd likely need at least a third dose. And so when the studies were set up, they've concentrated on that two-dose. And there were data collected subsequent to that. And over time, we saw antibody wane, but we saw still protection. It wasn't until about six months following those first two doses that then we started seeing clinical cases where people were being reinfected. At that time, we had no idea what that meant from an immunologic standpoint. What was the correlate of protection there, as I said before, that seemed to now have been lost? And so part of the challenge was it wasn't that the data weren't there it couldn't be reviewed or weren't made available. It was the fact that we didn't know how to understand them. We didn't know what level of protection would mean how the antibodies gone to a, a X lower level than it was in the boost or in the time period of the first doses. And now you are no longer protected against infection or reinfection, or you are. And even that whole discussion has taken place with regard to people previously infected, not just vaccinated. You know, six months out, this is what we see in your antibody profile. Are you protected or not? We don't know. This is part of the learning we're going through right now with these vaccines to understand just what is it that will take you to a place where you're protected and what is your serologic picture or your antibody levels look like where you're no longer protected. We don't know that yet. And Michael, there's much talk, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, of being able to simply recode. Both Pfizer and Moderna have talked about they're already working on a recode. They could be 100 days. It's probably now 80 days from the original 100 days they were talking about. When we get there, is that going to be the solution or they could be chasing our tails that we'll get another variant and therefore the recode for this one may not be the solution to the next issue? And should people be expecting that they're going to be just getting an updated, recoded vaccine? Or do you think there's some other solution that's needed here? Well, right now, it surely appears that what data we do have, that if you reboost with the ancestral variant, the strain that came out of Wuhan, basically you do have a quite high level of protection, just as we saw in those first two to five months after the first two doses. And so from that perspective, you know, the boost can give us back protection. Can I just ask, Michael, how long do you think that protection will last for from the boost? Well, that's what we don't know. That's as I pointed out a moment ago is we're still studying that. And I think as already even with the third dose boost, we're seeing at three and four months after that, the antibody levels drop precipitously. Will that mean they're protected? Some will say the T-cell maturation at that point, which we're not well measuring, could also be such an important part of protection. But I think to go back to the issue about do we need a strain-specific vaccine, it appears it's not necessary if you have sufficient priming and actual immune response to just the variant from Wuhan, the one we used in the original vaccines. So, you know, it's a question that comes up very frequently as we now are seeing transmission. If we go to a Omicron-specific vaccine, Will we then just be in a situation where four months later, we'll have a new variant show up and now we're going to have to redo the vaccine again? And is that the way to go? Or do we get sufficient protection just from having uh, high levels of the original vaccine protection? And I think that still represents the best way to go. And Michael, there's been some other news that we've been following and other people have been following. Pfizer recently announced what appeared to be some very encouraging news about an antiviral 
a treatment, I think they've called it Paxlovid, if I've got the pronunciation right, which is a simple oral course of pills. It's a combination of two different pills. You can take it at home. And it seems to have very good evidence of stopping the virus replicating. And if it doesn't replicate, obviously, the chance of severe disease and death is lower. It appears you have to get these pills very early on. So if you've got a scratchy throat and you ignore it, it may not be as good. But how encouraging that we may have step changes in the standard of care here and things that can be done outside hospital to manage this pandemic. Well, let me offer a preface to this as an example and then comment directly on your question. It was a year ago right now, this week, I actually wrote and did a podcast in which was entitled The Last Mile, The Last Inch. And it was all about vaccine. And as vaccine was just beginning to arrive, I laid out in the last mile all the challenges we had to get sufficient quantities of vaccine to the public and to the people where they could use it, where they would take it and how we need to do that around the world. The last inch was all about getting the needle in the arm. And I tried to raise the point that I saw that we were going to have real challenges getting people to take this vaccine. And it wasn't going to be as simple as, you know, build it and they will come. And sure enough, that had become a very real challenge, as you know, around the world, and particularly in the United States, to get people vaccinated. Well, when you look at this drug, remember that right now, two-thirds to or more of the people who are seriously ill in our hospitals are people who have been unvaccinated. And at least in countries like the United States, that's been by choice because, in fact, everyone has had the opportunity to become vaccinated if they wanted to. And what we're finding among that group who are making up the majority of the hospitalized patients, they're the ones making up the majority of the deaths, they are basically not only anti-vaccine, but they're more or less anti-established medicine. And so we're seeing, for example, they continue to take their ivermectin, even though we have no evidence that it's helpful, and we have a lot of evidence showing how detrimental it can be, particularly taken in large doses. And what we're finding now are people are actually saying, well, those pills that were made by the Biden administration, they're poison pills, I'm not going to take them. So what I think could be, just as we see such a shame that vaccines are not protecting more people from dying, I think we could see the same thing with this drug, where if the people who need it most aren't taking it, we have a challenge. Now, what we've seen with this drug is remarkable. I do believe we can reduce 80 to 85 percent the number of people who go on and require hospitalization and surely are those at greatest risk for serious illness and death. And so I think it could be a game changer. We also have to address the issue of testing and ready access availability of the drug. One of the challenges we have right now is in many parts of the world, we don't have either testing or the drug in such a way that somebody can be found to be positive and then take the drug. As you pointed out, they have to do it quickly, within several days of their onset to have maximal impact. So there's logistic issues we have to work out yet here. There are clearly socially political issues we have to work out. But from a science standpoint, I think this drug is really a very important step forward. Well, that's very good news for everyone. It certainly looks like a very good step forward to us of what we've read so far and people we've spoken to. You made a year or so ago a prediction, really what we're seeing now, you were warning. Are we, with the arrival of antivirals and and maybe the rapid spread of Omicron, are we reaching the sort of end point of this and obviously a very 
nasty potentially few months coming up in front of us? Or are we giving this virus potentially the maximum global opportunity to change again? You know, could we see something where it change? Obviously, the bar's very high. It looks like to be something that's more infectious than Omicron, but we thought Delta was a very high bar and it seemed to have done that trick. But could yeah. you get something that's even more infectious? Could you in immune-compromised patients who get this change again and it take a turn on severity that it evades vaccines and he's more severe. Is there a chance that, is this kind of over now with antivirals and, and so many people getting infected? Or are you still cautious that we could still have another chapter to this story? Well, you know, I still remain cautious. You know, I've been saying for, as I said, more than 10 months, you know, this is all about the variants and how they arrive. And we know we have many, many millions and millions of people in this world who have yet either to be infected or who have been protected through vaccines. So we've got a lot of wood for this coronavirus forest fire to burn. On top of it, we've learned more recently that there may actually be great challenges with the animal world and what happens with this virus. Here in the United States, we just did studies showing white-tailed deer frequently became infected with the virus, the very same one the humans were infected with. We don't understand how in close contact that could happen. I mean, they most of these deer have no contact with humans as such. And we've looked at environmental sources, i.e., you know, sewage systems running, you know, into streams and so forth. We don't know why. But the bottom line is, who's to say that the next uh, virus isn't going to spin out of the animal world that has been in that animal world for some months and more mutations develop there. There's been some that believe that this particular Omicron may have come from animals as opposed to having been in some chronically infected individual like an HIV-infected person in South Africa. So I think we're wide open yet. I can't believe this is going to go on and on and on to the point of generations from now they're still dealing with this very severe problem. But at the same time, I'm not optimistic that suddenly it's just going to go away tomorrow. So I come back to what I think is going to ultimately be the best answer, and that's a pan-coronavirus vaccine, meaning it covers all the coronavirus strains in a way that gets at some very specific protected sites on the virus in terms of launching immunity against those will protect you against all of the coronaviruses. And that's what we need right now very, very much. And Michael, just finally, obviously this is very timely and, and we're in Australia, but people listen around the world. What advice would you just give to people for the next sort of, you know, at least month ahead? Is this, as you just say, it's a fire storm that's going to spread around the world in that period. What's your sort of personal health advice that you would give to people here? Well, number one, most importantly, is you can't run out the clock on this one. This virus will find you if you're not vaccinated or protected from natural infection. And when I say protected, I'm not even assuming that you will prevent from getting infected, but you surely can do a great deal to reduce the severity of illness. So if you can't run out the clock, please get vaccinated. You know, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting your loved ones, your colleagues, your friends, and you're not taking a hospital bed that could be used for someone else who desperately needs it more than even you do. And so to me, that's the number one message is get vaccinated. Number two, I think is just understand that this next six, seven weeks are going to be very eventful. But don't let that make you feel as if this is what it's going to be forever. It's not. And I hope that we can get through this with as least pain as possible on a global basis. Remember, we're all going to be in the soup at the same time on this one. There's not going to be a northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. There's not going to be an Americas versus Europe 
versus Asia kind of picture. This is going to be we're all in the soup together. And we just have to get through it. And hopefully with the time that we have right now this year, we can develop potentially even better vaccines. But most importantly, we can develop immunity because of a successful mild infection, which we can't bank on. But if that happened, even for those who are vaccinated to be boosted again with that, probably will give us a lot more protection than we have now. And just on that question, finally, on mildness, would you say there's a lot of people who are saying this is just really mild, we've got nothing to worry about. Would you say, do you think you'll know a lot more in two weeks? Do you think people should be cautious around making that assumption? I think we still have to be very cautious. In fact, with the data I just shared with you out of South Africa supports the fact that it isn't just all mild illness. The other thing we haven't talked about but is very important is long COVID. And we don't have any sense yet what Omicron is going to do with long COVID. It could be a very serious cause of that. So, you know, even if you get a relatively mild case, that may not be something that is going to be of, uh, you know, pleasure for you down the road if you develop long COVID. And is that because, Michael, this just doesn't infect your lungs. It actually goes to other critical organs in your body as well, and we don't know the long-term effects of that. It does go to other organs, but I think everything right now tells us that long COVID is an immunologically mediated disease, that it's your immune system basically not being able to shut down in the right way and continue to attack your body. And so that's a problem because once the trigger has been pulled and this immune cascade starts, we don't know how to stop it right now, and that's been a real challenge. Well, Michael, I would like to thank you. I know you've been incredibly busy. You've been sort all over the world at the moment. You've certainly given us counsel and advice over time, which I really appreciate from everyone at Magellan. But I'm sure our clients and listeners, particularly at this point in time, will be incredibly appreciative that you've taken the time to share this with us at the moment. And also have a very happy holiday season. I hope everyone stays safe around your family as well. Well, thank you very much. And I wish the same to all of you. And, uh, you know, I can't wait for this pandemic to be over with because I can't wait to come back to the Big Island. One of my last trips before the pandemic broke was a trip to Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I love what you have. So I want to come back. We had no tourists here since March 2020. It would be wonderful to have you and many other tourists back in our country. Good. I I hope so. So thank you so much. It was good to see you. Okay, good to see you as well. Bye-bye. Thanks. That was Hamish Douglas. Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to epidemiologist Dr. Michael Osterholm, a New York Times bestselling author and advisor to President Joe Biden on coronavirus. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. Thank you.